Welcome to the SBC History Podcast. This is Luke Holmes. I'm here by myself this week, here with a special interview with Amy Whitfield. You know Amy from the SBC This Week podcast and from her work at Southeastern Seminary, or maybe you know her husband Keith, but we got together at False Creek, Oklahoma, and just chatted some about the work she has done as a parliamentarian for the SBC, why she likes the history of the SBC, and a little bit about what she believes the future of the SBC holds. So I hope you enjoy this. I'm here today with Amy Whitfield from uh, Southeastern SBC this week. So uh, you are here at False Creek this week for Collegiate Week. Tell me what you think about False Creek. Oh, I have just loved uh, walking around, seeing everything. I've heard about False Creek for so long and um, couldn't believe I was gonna finally get to come here. And it's just been really neat to see uh, all the things that have been done here, but then also uh, just the nod to the history of the place. It's really obvious that it's an important, uh, an important place for Oklahoma Baptists, and that just comes through everywhere, uh, everywhere you go. So while while we're enjoying uh, Collegiate Week and, and seeing all that Lifeway is doing to serve um, college students in the SBC, um, it, it's it's been pretty special to see what this place is to Oklahoma. Uh, tell me, why do you think SBC history is important? Well, of course, I have to, you know, go ahead and full disclosure. I'm I'm just a history nerd anyway, so I I love it in a way that I know. Uh, is maybe even more than than your average uh, person. My kids are always quick to uh, to to make sure I know that. Um, but I think there's something very important to give context to the things that we're doing, to the conversations that we're having, particularly in uh, the SBC. So many times um, we can be dealing with issues and maybe we don't even understand one another. We don't understand perspectives that other people have. And knowing the history of something, the history of an issue, helps us uh, to be able to to see one another's um, vantage points, helps us to know how we got to where we are. Um, and so I think it's really good to, to, keep bringing, uh, to keep bringing up what our past is so that we can learn from it. One thing, um, when on the podcast, we always are, are we do a special moment uh, called This Week in SBC History. One thing that's so eye-opening is it, it really demonstrates when we show something that happened in the last 50 years or 100 years, um, it reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun, that all these conversations that we think are brand new and so important uh, may be really similar to conversations that people were have, having before. And we can learn something from how they had those conversations, from what their values and priorities were at the time. Um, so, so I think we, we miss out when we don't uh, keep in view all of the, uh, the, the things of our past. So give me an example of some of those things that maybe repeat themselves or that we're dealing with again. Okay, one that, that has always been interesting to me uh, is that a few years back, and it's been a little while now, but when, uh, when Bryant Wright was the president of the SBC, we had the big discussion about whether or not we should change our name. And there was, it was so impassioned and it was so, um, uh, right. people had so many different views on it and concerns. And uh, it was just not, you know, not long ago I was doing something for the podcast and I start digging 
and I just randomly start searching. I just hit old uh, Baptist Press archives and just look. I'll pick a year at random, and I'll go to the week that's the same, and I'm just trying to, to see what is something that is meaningful for us today to hear. And in doing that, I've hit on so many times where this conversation, it's not a new conversation at all. Right. We've had it before. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so what struck me is how people of a younger generation in this most recent conversation, I mean, honestly, we acted like we had invented this, <laughs> right, that we right. have this great idea that, that it's, it, that we should change the name. And it's, it, it really told me something to recognize we're, we, we aren't inventing uh, these things. Um, there are conversations that have gone before us. And that's just, you know, that's just one. But certainly as we deal with uh, issues of um, racial reconciliation is a, is a big one. We've been dealing with this within the broader culture for a very, very long time. And knowing some of the conversations that have happened or some of the issues we've dealt with um, really gives us gives us a perspective now. And they've talked in the past about merging NAM. Yes, and the yes, that's been for a long time. Yes, or about any number of things. And right, we just have these conversations over and over and over. Right. Uh, so you like history, but what do you do with kind of the hard parts of history? Oh, that's that's really tough. And and just to to be honest, there are times that I will find um, some stories that are difficult. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and one thing that's very, very interesting, particularly when you're coming back through digital archives of the news, I mean, that's kind of primary source material where you're, you're really seeing what people thought of something as it happened. Um, and, uh, you have the benefit of hindsight, you have the benefit of, you know, maybe decades of, uh, watching how this issue changed through, uh, through time. And you're looking at it, it's kind of shocking to hear uh, with 2018 ears what someone might have said in the 60s. Um, and honestly, how I, how I deal with it um, is I think we have to recognize the categories, the moments when it's right and appropriate to think through and bring something up. Um, I usually will make the decision uh, that if you hit on a hard part of history, a, um, a three-minute segment on a podcast is just not long enough right. to really talk about that. But um, it may be something that is worth a bigger conversation or is worth bringing to the attention of some people or is worth doing um, an article on. There's, um, there's one story which I pro I'm not going to give away yet because I have some, uh, some ideas about what to do with it. But it was, it was something I hit on. As uh, as I was looking for um, for the podcast, and it didn't seem like a good three minute conversation, but it did seem like a story that needed to be told. Um, but it didn't need to be told without further research. So I'm working on that one uh, right now. That uh, is just a story about a um, some the the I guess the journey of a particular uh, curriculum that was uh, what was being published back in the 60s and um, and the the interaction about that I think it merits uh, maybe an article or something that gives you know further study so I think when we see these stories come to the surface we need to tell the truth I mean it that uh, we need to to really step back with um, 
with interpretive eyes, like trying to understand how things fit in, but not be afraid uh, to, to honestly tell our stories, but just to think about kind of when the right time is and how far we should go in studying them as we present them. So that's kind of how I deal with the, the hard parts. I don't think we should run from them, though. And there are times that um, that we've brought up, you know, difficult things yeah. uh, in, in the past as well. There's something about, uh, to some people, history is just history, but to other people it is it's my history. It's right. History, right. history affects different people in different ways. Right. And I found that asking people who this particular bit of history affects and, and their take on it and when and how to share it really makes a big difference. Yes. Okay, now we'll get down and nerdy. How did you become interested in parliamentary procedure? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so, interestingly enough, I don't know that I would say I had this sort of uh, interest that popped up. I didn't really even know much about it, um, but it came from when I was in college. Uh, so I went to a liberal arts college in uh, in upstate South Carolina. It was a women's college, and I was involved in a um, in a program that uh, it was model programs. Um, was, you know, a lot of people right. do model UN. This was right. uh, something that was at the League of Arab States, and so you essentially would be given a country and you would go um, to this event and your, your country you're assigned to, you would debate issues. And in order to do that, so that was just my interest as um, a politics major, in order to, do, to participate in that event, we had to learn parliamentary procedure to do it. Um, so we, uh, we didn't have a parliamentarian, just all of the debaters had to know how to do it and navigate it together. Um, so I just did it. It was something that I, I learned um, and just developed the skill through that. So then you put it, I graduated, put it aside. Fast forward years later when I'm um, beginning to participate in the SBC and starting, you know, I'm sitting in the room and one thing I began to notice as I would talk to people, and, and this was sometimes when I was just there as a messenger and then sometimes when I was there um, working with an entity, is people would begin trying to interpret what's going on. They would start to assume that debate was going to go in a particular direction, and then I would just be in conversation and say, well, no, it can't because right. this is not, you know, right. th this, this doesn't work within the procedure. And um, and, and I just started to, to realize that, that something I had developed for a different purpose was actually applying really well in the SBC, and I, I saw the importance of how we did our business. Um, and it, it's kind of the great equalizer, you know, it gives yeah. everybody a level playing field. Yeah. So the, it was just sort of something I was sitting back and doing, and then as, as my involvement grew, I was just participating in a lot of conversations with people. I became... Um, uh, I became connected with the chief parliamentarian, Barry McCarty, and in some ways he's just interacting with me telling, you know, we, we would run into each other at the annual meeting and he would uh, talk to me about different, um, like, hypothetical test cases, things like that, just as I was learning. Um, so it says you're you are your licensed Tell me what that means. Well, so there are a few different, there are a couple of different organizations. There's the American Institute of Parliamentarians, and then there is the National Association of Parliamentarians. And uh, our bylaws state that our chief parliamentarian has to um, just be a member of one of those organizations. Now, uh, Dr. McCarty is kind of at the highest levels of both. Um, 
within those um, you uh, within those associations there are just different levels of um, of uh, what's the word there are different levels of accreditation, accreditation I guess is, would be the word um, and so I would put myself at like the bottom of the totem pole on this as uh, Dr. McCarty and then even uh, Dr. Greenway at Southern Seminary are like way up at the top. Um, so I'm really honored and, uh, and, and just privileged to be able to kind of be around them and to learn from them as I really start the process because I was just an amateur um, who knew it because I had to do it right. and then kind of retroactively I'm going through all the, the processes. I um, thought about being a parliamentarian just because I like to tell people what to do. Right. But that's probably not a good reason. Yeah. Uh, so when procedure is needed at the SBC, when mm -hmm. anytime you get that many people in a room you need some type right. of procedure. Uh, though the way we view meetings today is that the way they've always happened or um, you know that's a that's a good question and I don't know I can only speak to the past few years and then you know stories I've heard one thing that's always important for people to remember is that um, the chair is the one who always makes the ruling uh, the parliamentarians advise the chair so uh, so we always like to make sure that that is clear um, we work together, you know, Craig Colbreth, Adam Greenway, um, myself, and then Barry McCarty. We work together as a team. I, like I said, I feel just honored to be a part of that, um, to discuss things, bounce things off of each other. We're flipping through our Roberts rules um, and uh, checking things out, kind of testing things, uh, maybe even asking each other questions. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? We're working with um, convention attorneys who know the bylaws uh, backwards and forwards uh, to be able to, to help, you know, just kind of sharpen one another. And then at the end of all that, you know, we take uh, our advice to the committee on order of business or to the chair. Um, and they're the ones that actually, you know, will make the ruling or the recommendation. Um, but it's, I mean, it, if it sounds really nerdy, that probably is because it is, uh, but I'm learning, you know, people like all different kinds of stuff. And so right. if you get those folks together, you have a good time. So, uh, you do a lot of these things before the meeting right. sometimes right. we have an advantage. We know somebody says they're going to make a motion about, you know, somebody's going to make a motion about. CP giving and speeches and right, you know, right. these types of things, so you're ready for them. Yeah, social media, you know, has I'm sure helped with that a lot uh, through the years. Or sometimes people will, uh, in advance, will let uh, the executive committee know, or they will reach out to someone and ask a question. Um, and I mean, it's really the goal of uh, of the chair and of the parliamentarians to just be prepared for anything, but to just think about what the rules say, to not really think about the substance um, of the of the request in, in in any way, shape, or form of like, well, we want this to happen or we want that. You you come, what you do is you come saying. Our role is to help these people do uh, what they want to do. Um, and to 
help provide the framework. So um, certainly things can happen on the floor that you don't expect, right. um, but the things that we know in advance help you to sit down and sort of tease out every, every scenario just so uh, we're prepared. And then at the very least, we maybe know, okay, depending on what they say, we'll know which page number in Robert's rules to go to, um, or we'll know which bylaw uh, to look at. And then when it's all over, you can kind of look back and notice every scenario you were prepared for that didn't happen. Um, but the process just makes uh, makes you better, I think, because it, it helps you to think out, think through all the possibilities. So there's a lot of people who think in church business meetings or things we should get away from Robert's Rules of Order and those things. Do you think that's a good idea, a bad idea? Tell me what you think. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to guess you would expect my answer. I don't think that's a good idea. Right. Um, I think there are a couple of things that that need to be remembered. I know that it can be difficult to do it in church business meetings, and I know we... You know, we're, we're in an era now where it used to be people were part of um, groups that used it, you know, whether it was the Rotary Club or, you know, they participate in the town council or whatever. It was something that, that people who were part of decision-making knew at least something about it, and now, you know, it's, it's, less, uh, it's less known. I think what folks want to do is say, well, let's just get together and kind of work together and figure figure it out. Um, but what can often happen in a, a meeting of any kind, so whether it's a church business meeting or the garden club meeting, what can happen it, it is, you know, maybe one group is it, it gets more control or gets uh, kind of gets their position out there and they can kind of uh, push push something through pretty easily or, or whatever or sometimes even with the best of intentions you're you're not aware of what other people think and what procedure will do is give you a way and a framework for everyone to have the opportunity to speak now that there are time constraints there are, there's always going to be someone that says well I was at the microphone and I didn't get to speak that's where the rules take you back to when the order of business is adopted and it says we're going to give this much time to each thing and then that means that if the clock runs out, it runs out. But everyone had at least the opportunity to step up to the microphone, first come, first serve. Um, so it's sort of your moment that it levels the playing field and gives everyone a voice. Um, it, when things are going really well, I think that's the moment that folks say, well, we don't really need this. Um, but when there is a challenging conversation to navigate, that's the time you, you say, well, we actually need some rules that demonstrate we handled this fairly. That's the thing. It's not something you need all the time, but when you do need it, you really, you really need, need it. it. Yes. You really need it. So the SBC has not always had a licensed parliamentarian on on staff at the meeting. Can you tell me how that came to be about? Right. So I'll try to tell the story as best I can. Um, I know, of course, I'll give a little shout out. Uh, our podcast, SBC This Week, um, Jonathan Howe did an interview with Dr. McCarty a couple of years ago. So you can go and look, uh, look in there and listen to that and maybe get more in depth. But 
you know, the SEC has used some form of procedure since it was started. In the very first bylaws, the rules of order were just actually listed in the bylaws. It was like six or seven things. And then, um, and then we used some parliamentary law textbooks that were written by uh, Southern Baptist leaders, uh, by uh, P.H. Mell, who was president right. for several years, right. by um, Kerfoot, who was a Southern seminary professor. Uh, in 1964, we started using Robert's Rules um, of Order, changed the bylaw, and our, our minutes from that meeting showed that there was some discussion. People tried to table it and refer it, but they finally uh, were not successful, so they changed it over to Robert's Rules. So we had parliamentarians. Um, we had people who were Southern Baptist uh, leaders. John Sullivan, the former yeah. um, executive yeah. director of the Florida Baptist Convention, was a, a parliamentarian for the SBC for years. Um, so in 85, there was a motion that came to the floor uh, that had to do with the nominating committee report. And, and this is right in the middle of the conservative insurgents, yes. the height of it. Yes, so this is the one where like 45,000 messengers are in there. Charles Stanley is presiding. Um, and it's very contentious. I mean, this is the one that kind of goes down in history as the yeah. most you yeah. know, contentious, largest deliberative body of any kind on record. In the world. Um, yes, that's correct. Not just in Southern Baptist history, not just in um, denominational history, but quite possibly the largest deliberative body ever. Um, so this motion comes up to replace the nominating committee's report with, like, pull out one entire slate and replace it with uh, the other. And there's a little back and forth about it, um, about whether or not they could do that. And uh, essentially, I and mean, you can go back and read the details of this, but essentially after a break um, that, that evening, I think, uh, Charles Stanley comes back and rules the motion out of order. And that ends up resulting in a lawsuit uh, against Charles Stanley and the SBC uh, of saying that they couldn't do that. Right. Now, the lawsuit gets thrown out because the courts basically say they're not going to get involved in denominational matters. Good call. Yes. Um, so that becomes a non-issue. But as a result, um, Charles Stanley and the, the SBC decide it's going to be better uh, to get a licensed parliamentarian just to give, because um, he had consulted with the, the team of parliamentarians, but just to give that sort of extra protection. Now, this is what I love, and uh, like I said, you may want to go hear that other, that yeah. interview to get the details, but I'm going to try to tell it as best I remember it. Um, what I love about that story is that Charles Stanley uh, called the, um, I, I don't know if it's the headquarters, the main office of, uh, it was either the National Association of Parliamentarians or the American Institute of Parliamentarians, and asked, who are your top three um, licensed parliamentarians who have an understanding of uh, church polity? And the names that he was given, the number one name was um, uh, Barry McCarty, and then there were two other names. And from what I understand, he called the other two and asked them who they would recommend yeah. to see what, you know, what yeah. would happen, laid it out. And they both said, McCarty is your guy. So at that time, you know, um, Dr. McCarty was not, uh, he's not Southern Baptist. Right. Um, he was uh, in the uh, Christian church um, denomination. And 
uh, just started. It basically, he would just join us for a few days every year right. uh, to do this and bring his his expertise. And he has been our chief parliamentarian ever since. So, in those meetings, those big meetings, mm-hmm. sometimes discussions could take a long time. This year, we had a a large number of motions. I think was it right? Ah, oh, goodness, it a was lot. it was a lot. Yeah. But uh, used to be that those that those motions weren't submitted beforehand, and everything was hashed out on the floor, right? Yeah, I need to probably go digging more um, into into that. I haven't spent as much time with the minutes in those years. Although you will see, it can be pretty fun to read. Um, I've looked in some in the late '80s uh, that at times they would just get hashed out right there. Uh, but our uh, but our processes have developed over time. I, I'm hesitant to say is say too much because I don't feel like I have enough expertise in that one. Any other uh, historical tidbits or any interesting things you know about just kind of the parliamentary history of the SBC? Yeah. So one thing is interesting if you look in the late '80s after we went. Um, with a, a licensed parliamentarian, you can still see some spots where uh, people tried to change that. They came up with all sorts of reasons. We need a parliamentarian um, that is this way or that way. Um, and you can tell they were just uh, tactics to try and get somebody different. Right. Um, and uh, one of them that sort of made me chuckle was there's a motion in 87 or 88, I can't remember, that I read uh, that someone said that they needed, uh, made a motion that the SBC have a, a woman as a parliamentarian. And I got so tickled when I read that because I wanted to call that person up and say, hey, they finally You're did right. it. You know, 2000, uh, 2016, they finally answered your motion. Um, but uh, I, you know, for years, I think a lot of those those people who had served as a you know voluntary team of parliamentarians still served as assistants, you know, to uh, Barry McCarty and made you know quite a team. Um, and then, in some ways, some of the the shift happened when Ronnie Floyd uh, the shift as far as the team when Ronnie Floyd said, "We've got to start." raising up some people who can sort of keep this going and so uh, Craig Colberth had done it for years but that's when Adam Greenway and I joined the joined the team so uh, we've been working together for the last three years maybe some people are interested or I'm interested at least that's why I'm asking <laughs> uh, kind of backstage at the convention in those tense moments right uh, it really is just kind of like you said everyone flipping through their handbooks and Right. And uh, parsing verbs and all those things. It, it is. I mean, some of it, our, our processes make it simpler than some people um, assume because since people do bring motions and it isn't debated right there on the floor, right. there's always time. So a motion comes and we're listening. You know, they have to bring it to uh, the desk and then someone uh, from the executive committee staff makes copies, prepares it all, and then we go into a meeting. So we get to listen to it and even think for a little bit while we're sitting at our desks up there and then go into the meeting and start thinking through all the procedural issues. Um, so, I mean, it's two really packed days, but it, it's only in the times when 
either maybe resolutions are up there. That's a very fast time right. um, because amendments are happening so quickly. And then if a motion does come to the floor for debate, so it, it's really those times that you have to be prepared to do things on the fly. Otherwise, we get you know a little bit of a buffer to talk through things, uh, to, to think through things. Uh, this year, resolutions is pretty easy because we did everything as a block. There were right. only a couple of amendments. Um, but the, the one a, a couple of years ago about the Confederate flag, that was yes. that, that was quite, uh, it, that, that was, we didn't know really what was gonna happen and you have to be a quick thinker, you know, all the time. It's an interesting distinction you make that the chair rules, but the parliamentarian advises, I've noticed that at the meetings these other, otherwise very capable men, presidents at SBC, sometimes they look very nervous yeah. up there. Yes. Now they have a book um, that is uh, is right in front of them that goes through the whole order of business. So they are prepped beforehand. Here, you know, we're going to do this at this time and then this at this time. Um, but it's certainly new and different. I mean, even even if they've uh, facilitated church business meetings, uh, still something of this magnitude, um, dealing with all the multiple structures, it's still something that's really new for them, and they're the ones you know that right. are kind of on the hot seat. Uh, but the the ones that I have worked for, uh, Dr. Floyd and Dr. Gaines, uh, they've been incredible. Uh, we talked a lot about the history of the SBC, but tell me about the future, what you see for it and why you're excited. Oh, yeah. So um, I think the thing that excites me the most um, about the SBC, it really was a moment this year, and it was when um, Augie Boto, uh, who's the interim president of the executive committee was uh, making his report and he asked all the first-time messengers to stand up and from where I could see uh, it it was I, I was shocked it was yeah. unbelievable how many first-time messengers were there and um, seeing just the the amount of younger people who were there now it is it, it's impossible to ever know where we're going to go on certain issues you know i've even talked about how when when you this year when you looked at some issues that we debated um like uh some of the ones that maybe about the the erlc we'll say it this way I, and there's a lot of reasons for this but the way that the debate about the agenda and whether or not to include the vice president uh, the way that sort of shook down and then the way some of the debates about the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission shook down, um, I actually didn't, they didn't seem to match up to me. I mean, I, I, it was overwhelming uh, support in from what I could see, um, certainly way beyond a majority for uh, the Committee on Order of Business's decision. Right. But then when things would come up about the ERLC, and just because of the nature of discussions over the last couple of years, that's why I say I was surprised just to see it so so strongly in, in both directions. And that just goes to show you we have people who are really thinking, and they're thinking about each issue. So just because you have maybe a younger generation or new people participating doesn't mean you can predict how everything is going to go. What it does tell you is that people are starting to show up. 
and I, I think we've had a few years uh, where I've been concerned. Um, I felt like I would see more interaction on Twitter right. from people who were not there, right. either supporting or being upset about what was happening. Um, and and as, as much as I appreciate their point of view, um, a tweet carries no weight, but a vote does. Right. And um, so I had some concern about where the people were and if our numbers were going to keep going down. Now, we still got, I mean, we're, we're still trying to break 10,000, and we came so close this year yeah. um, on a regular basis. I, I think I think Orlando, probably we've got a shot. You know, usually always when it's in Orlando, right. you, you got a shot at 10,000 anyway. But... Um, so we're we're still a far cry from those years in the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and, and that's okay. But I think the thing that excites me the most about the future of the SBC is seeing people show up, and uh, that's what I, I keep pushing and want is is higher levels of engagement um, because that's how we make decisions together. You know about where right. how we want our cooperation uh, to go and what our collective mission is going to look like. The decisions are made by those who show up. Yes, they are. That's good. Well, thank you for taking time, Amy. I hope you have a good week at Falls Creek and uh, enjoy that. And thank you for, for highlighting history each week on SBC this week. You make sure and check that out if you've not before. And, uh, and we'll see you, if not sooner, at least in Birmingham. Well, thank you very much.